Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Today we're reading from Beautiful Joe by Margaret Marshall Saunders. Chapter 14. How We Caught the Burglar. What was the wretch doing in the house with my dear Miss Laura? I thought I should go crazy. I scratched at the door and barked and yelped. I sprang up on it, and though I was quite a heavy dog by this time, I felt as light as a feather. It seemed to me that I should go mad if I could not get that door open. Every few seconds I stopped and put my head down to the door sill to listen. There was a rushing about inside the room, and a chair fell over, and someone seemed to be getting out of the window. This made me worse than ever. I did not stop to think that I was only a medium-sized dog, and that Jenkins would probably kill me if he got his hands on me. I was so furious that I thought only of getting hold of him. In the midst of the noise that I made, there was a screaming and a rushing to and fro upstairs. I ran up and down the hall, and halfway up the steps and back again. I did not want Miss Laura to come down, but how was I to make her understand? There she was, in her white gown, leaning over the railing and holding back her long hair, her face a picture of surprise and alarm. "'The dog has gone mad!' screamed Miss Bessie. "'Nurse, pour a pitcher of water on him!' The nurse was more sensible. She ran downstairs, her nightcap flying, and a blanket she had seized from her bed trailing behind her. "'There are thieves in the house,' she shouted at the top of her voice, "'and the dog has found it out.' "'She did not go near the dining-room door, "'but threw open the front one, crying, "'Policemen! Policemen! Help! Help! Thieves! Murder!' "'Such a screaming as that old woman made. "'She was worse than I was. "'I dashed by her, out through the hall door, "'and away down the gate where I heard someone running. "'I gave a few loud yelps to call Jim "'and leaped the gate as the man before me had done.' There was something savage in me that night. I think it must have been the smell of Jenkins. I felt as if I could tear him to pieces. I have never felt so wicked since. I was hunting him, as he had hunted me and my mother, and the thought gave me pleasure. Old Jim soon caught up with me, and I gave him a push with my nose to let him know I was glad he had come. We rushed swiftly on, and at the corner caught up with the miserable man who was running away from us. I gave an angry growl, and jumping up, bit at his leg. He turned around, and though it was not a very bright night, there was light enough for me to see the ugly face of my old master. He seemed so angry to think that Jim and I dared to snap at him. He caught up a handful of stones, and with some bad words, threw them at us. Just then, away in front of us, was a queer whistle, and then one like it behind us. Jenkins made a strange noise in his throat and started to run down a side street, away from the direction of the two whistles. I was afraid he was going to get away, and though I could not hold him, I kept springing up on him, and once I tripped him up. Oh, how furious he was! He kicked me against the side of a wall and gave me two or three hard blows with a stick that he caught up. I would not give in, though I could scarcely see him for the blood that was running over my eyes. Old Jim got so angry whenever Jenkins touched me that he ran up behind and nipped his calves to make him turn on him. Soon, Jenkins came to a high wall, where he stopped, and with a hurried look behind him, began to climb over it. 
The wall was too high for me to jump. He was going to escape. What should I do? I barked as loudly as I could for someone to come, and then sprang up and held him by the leg as he was getting over. I had such a grip that I went over the wall with him and left Jim on the other side. Jenkins fell on his face in the earth. Then he got up, and with a look of deadly hatred on his face, pounced upon me. If help had not come, I think he would have dashed out my brains against the wall, as he dashed out my poor little brothers against the horse stall. But just then there was a running sound. Two men came down the street and sprang upon the wall, just where Jim was leaping up and down and barking in distress. I saw at once by their uniforms and their clubs in their hands that they were policemen. In one short instant they had hold of Jenkins. He gave up then, but he stood snarling at me like an ugly dog. If it hadn't have been for that cur, I'd never been caught. Why? And he staggered back and uttered a bad word. It's me own dog. More shame to you, said one of the policemen sternly. What have you been up to at this time of night to have your own dog and a quiet minister's spaniel dog chasing you through the streets? Jenkin began to swear and would not tell anything. There was a house in the garden, and just at this minute, someone in an upper room opened a window and called out, Hello there. What are you doing? We're catching a thief, sir, said one of the policemen. Leastwise, I think that's what he's been up to. Could you throw us down a bit of rope? We've no handcuffs here, and one of us has to go to the lockup and the other to Washington Street, where there's a woman yelling blue murder. Hurry up, please, sir. The gentleman threw down a rope, and in two minutes Jenkins' wrists were tied together, and he was walked through the gate, saying bad words as fast as he could to the policeman who was leading him. Good dogs, said the other policeman to Jim and me. Then he ran up the street, and we followed him. As we hurried along Washington Street and came near our own house, we saw lights gleaming through the darkness and heard people running to and fro. The nurse's shrieking had alarmed the neighborhood. The Morris boys were all out in the street, only half clad and shivering with cold. And the jury's coachman, with no hat on and his hair sticking up all over his head, was running about with a lantern. The neighbors' houses were all lighted up, and a good many people were hanging out of their windows and opening their doors, and calling to each other to know what all this noise meant. When the policeman appeared with Jim and me at his heels, quite a crowd gathered around him to hear his part of the story. Jim and I dropped on the ground, panting as hard as we could, and with little streams of water running from our tongues. We were both pretty well used up. Jim's back was bleeding in several places from the stones Jenkins had thrown at him, and I was a mass of bruises. Presently we were discovered, and then what a fuss was made over us. Brave dogs, noble dogs, everybody said, and they patted and praised us. We were very proud and happy, and stood up and wagged our tails. At least Jim did, and I wagged what I could. Then they found what a state we were in. Mrs. Morris cried, and catching me up in her arms, ran into the house with me, and Jack followed with old Jim. We all went into the parlor. There was a good fire there, and Miss Laura and Miss Bessie were sitting over it. They sprang up when they saw us, and right there in the parlor washed our wounds and made us lie down by the fire. "'You saved our silver, brave Joe,' said Miss Bessie. "'Just wait till my papa and mamma come home and see what they will say.' "'Well, Jack, what is the latest?' as the Morris boys came trooping into the room. The policeman has been questioning your nurse and examining the dining room and has gone down to the station to make his report. And do you know what he has found out? said Jack excitedly. No, what? asked Miss Bessie. Why, that villain was going to burn your house. 
Miss Bessie gave a little shriek. Why, what do you mean? Well, said Jack, they think by what they have discovered that he planned to pack his bag with silver and carry it off. But just before he did so, he meant to pour oil around the room and set fire to it, so people would not find out that he had been robbing you. Why, we might have all been burned to death, said Miss Bessie. He couldn't burn the dining room without setting fire to the rest of the house. Certainly not, said Jack. That shows what a villain he is. Do they know this for certain, Jack? asked Miss Laura. Well, they suppose so. They found some bottles of oil along with the bag he had for the silver. How horrible! You darling old Joe, perhaps you saved our lives. And pretty Miss Bessie kissed my ugly swollen head. I could do nothing but lick her little hand, but always after that I thought a great deal of her. It is now some years since all this happened, and I might as well tell the end of it. The next day the Drurys came home, and everything was found out about Jenkins. The night they had left Fairport, he had been hanging about the station. He knew just who were left in the house, for he had once supplied them with milk and knew all about their family. He had no customers at this time, for after Mr. Harry rescued me, and that piece came out in the paper about him, he found that no one would take milk from him. His wife died, and some kind people put his children in a home, and he was obliged to sell Toby and the cows. Instead of learning a lesson from all this and leading a better life, he kept sinking lower. He was, therefore, ready for any kind of mischief that turned up. And when he saw the Drurys going away in the train, he thought he would steal a bag of silver from their sideboard, then set fire to the house, and run away and hide the silver. After a time, he would take it to some city and sell it. He was made to confess all this. Then, for his wickedness, he was sent to prison for ten years, where I hope he will learn to be a better man. I was sore and stiff for a long time, and one day Mrs. Drury came over to see me. She did not love dogs as the Morrises did. She tried to, but she could not. Dogs can see fun in things as well as human beings can. And I buried my muzzle in the hearth rug so that she would not see how I was curling up my lip and smiling at her. You are a good dog, she said slowly. You are... And then she stopped and could not think of anything else to say to me. I got up and stood in front of her, for a well-bred dog should not lie down when a lady speaks to him. I wagged my body a little, and I would gladly have said something to help her out of her difficulty, but I couldn't. If she had stroked me, it might have helped, but she didn't want to touch me, and I knew she didn't want me to touch her, so I just stood looking at her. "'Mrs. Morris,' she said, turning from me with a puzzled face, "'I don't like animals, and I can't pretend to, for they always find me out.' But can't you let that dog know that I shall feel eternally grateful to him for not only saving our property, for that's a trifle, but my darling daughter from fright and annoyance and a possible injury or loss of life? I think he understands, said Mrs. Morris. He is a very wise dog. And smiling in great amusement, she called me to her and put my paws on her lap. Look at that lady, Joe. She is pleased with you for driving Jenkins away from her house. You remember Jenkins? I barked angrily and limped to the window. "'How intelligent he is,' said Mrs. Drury. "'My husband has sent to New York for a watchdog, "'and he says that from this on our house shall never be without one. "'Now I must go. "'Your dog is happy, Mrs. Morris, and I can do nothing for him, "'except to say that I shall never forget him, "'and I wish he would come over occasionally to see us. "'Perhaps when we get our dog he will.' 
I shall tell my cook that whenever she sees him to give him something to eat. This is a souvenir for Laura of that dreadful night. I will feel under a deep obligation to you, so I am sure you will allow her to accept it. Then she gave Mrs. Morris a little box and went away. When Miss Laura came in, she opened the box and found in it a handsome diamond ring. On the inside was engraved, Laura, in memory of December 20th, 18, from her grateful friend, Bessie. The diamond was worth hundreds of dollars, and Mrs. Morris told Miss Laura that she would rather she did not wear it then, while she was a young girl. It was not suitable for her, and she knew Mrs. Drury did not expect her to do so. She wished to give her a valuable present, and this would always be worth a great deal of money. Chapter 15. Our Journey to Riverdale Every other summer, the Morris children were sent to some place in the country so they could have a change of air and see what country life was like. As there were so many of them, they usually went different ways. The summer after I came to them, Jack and Carl were sent to an uncle in Vermont, Miss Laura visited another in New Hampshire, and Ned and Willie spent their holidays with a maiden aunt who lived in the White Mountains. Mr. and Mrs. Morris stayed at home. Fairport was a lovely place in summer, and many people came there to visit. The children took some of their pets with them, and the others they left at home for their mother to look after. She never allowed them to take a bird or an animal anywhere, unless she knew it would be perfectly welcome. Don't let your pets be a worry to other people, she often said to them. Or they will dislike them, and you too. Miss Laura went away earlier than the others, for she had not been well through the spring and was pale and thin. One day in early in June, we set out. I say we, for after my adventure with Jenkins, Miss Laura said that I should never be parted from her. If anyone invited her to come and see them and didn't want me, she would stay at home. The whole family went to the station to see us off. They put a chain on my collar and took me to the baggage office and got two tickets for me. One was tied to my collar, the other Miss Laura put in her purse. Then I was put in a baggage car and chained in a corner. I heard Mr. Morris say that as we were only going a short distance, it was not worthwhile to get an express ticket for me. There was a dreadful noise and bustle at the station. Whistles were blowing, and people were rushing up and down the platform. Some men were tumbling baggage so fast into the car where I was that I was afraid some of it would fall on me. For a few minutes, Miss Laura stood by the door and looked in. But soon the men had piled up so many boxes and trunks that she could not see me. Then she went away. Mr. Morris asked one of the men to see that I did not get hurt, and I heard some money rattle. Then he, too, went away. It was the beginning of June, and the weather had suddenly become very hot. We had a long, cold spring, and not being used to heat, it seemed very hard to bear. Before the train started, the doors of the baggage car were closed, and it became quite dark inside. The darkness and the heat and the close smell and the noise as we went rushing along made me feel sick and frightened. I did not dare to lie down, but sat up trembling and wishing that we might soon come to Riverdale Station. But we did not get there for some time, and I was to have a great fright. I was thinking of all the stories that I knew of animals traveling. In February, the Drury's Newfoundland watchdog Pluto had arrived from New York, and he told Jim and me that he had a miserable journey. A friend of Mr. Drury's had brought him from New York. He saw him chained up in his car, and then went into his pullman, first tipping the baggage master handsomely to look after him. Pluto said the baggage master had a very red nose, and he was always getting drinks for himself when they stopped at a station. 
but he never once gave him a drink or anything to eat from the time they left New York till they got to Fairport. When the train stopped there and Pluto's chain was unfastened, he sprang out onto the platform and nearly knocked Mr. Drury down. He saw some snow that had sifted through the station roof, and he was so thirsty that he began to lick it up. When the snow was all gone, he jumped up and licked the frost on the windows. Mr. Drury's friend was very angry. He found the baggage master and said to him, "'What did you mean by coming into my car every few hours to tell me the dog was fed and watered and comfortable? I shall report you.' He went into the office at the station and complained of the man and was told he was a drinking man and was going to be dismissed. I was not afraid of suffering like Pluto because it was only going to take us a few hours to get to Riverdale. I found that we always went slowly before we went into a station and one time when we began to slacken speed, I thought surely we must be at our journey's end. However, it was not Rivendale. The car gave a kind of jump. Then there was a crashing sound ahead and we stopped. I heard men shouting and running up and down, and I wondered what had happened. It was all dark and still inside the car, and nobody came. But the noise kept up outside, and I knew something had gone wrong with the train. Perhaps Miss Laura had got hurt. Something must have happened to her, or she would come to me. I barked and pulled at my chain till my neck was sore. But for a long, long time, I was there alone. The men running about outside must have heard me. If ever I hear a man in trouble and crying for help, I go to him and see what he wants. After such a long time, it seemed to me that it must be the middle of night. The door at the end of the car opened, and a man looked in. "'This is all through baggage for New York, miss,' I heard him say. "'They wouldn't put your dog in here.' "'Yes, they did. I am sure this is the car,' I heard in the voice I knew so well. "'And will you get him out, please? He must be terribly frightened.' The man found me, stooped down and unfastened my chain, grumbling to himself because I had not been put in another car. Some folks tumble a dog around as if he were a junk of coal, he said, patting me kindly. I was nearly wild with delight to get with Miss Laura again, but I had barked so much and pressed my neck so hard with my collar that my voice was all gone. I fawned on her and wagged myself about and opened and shut my mouth, but no sound came out of it. It made Miss Laura nervous. She tried to laugh and cry at the same time, and then bit her lip hard and said, "'Oh, Joe, don't!' "'He's lost his bark, hasn't he?' said the man, looking at me curiously. "'It is a wicked thing to confine an animal in a dark enclosed car,' said Miss Laura, trying to see her way down the steps through her tears. The man put out his hand and helped her. "'He's not suffered much, Miss,' he said. "'Don't you distress yourself.' Now, if you'd been a brakeman on a train, as I was a few years ago, and seen the animals run in for the stockyards, you might talk about cruelty. Cars that ought to hold a certain number of pigs or sheep or cattle, jammed full with twice as many, and half of them throwed out, choked and smothered to death. I've seen a man running up and down, raging and swearing, because the railway people hadn't let him get in to tend to his pigs on the road. Miss Laura turned and looked at the man with a very white face. "'Is it like that now?' she asked. "'No, no,' he said hastily. "'It's better now. "'They've got new regulations about taking care of the stock. "'But mind you, miss, the cruelty to animals isn't all done on the railways. "'There's a great lot of dumb creatures suffering all around everywhere. "'And if they could speak, it would be a hard showing for some other people beside the railway men.' "'He lifted his cap and hurried down the platform.' 
and Miss Laura, her face very much troubled, picked her way among the bits of coal and wood scattered about the platform and went into the waiting room of the little station. She took me up to the filter and let some water run in her hand and gave it to me to lap. Then she sat down, and I leaned my head against her knees, and she stroked my throat gently with her quiet hand. There were some people sitting about the room, and from their talk I found out what had happened. There had been a freight train on a sidetrack at the station, waiting for us to pass it. The switchman had carelessly left the switch open after this train went by, and when we came along afterward, our train, instead of running in by the platform, went crashing into the freight train. If we had been going fast, great damage might have been done. As it was, our engine was smashed so badly that it could not take us on. The passengers were frightened, and we were having a tedious time waiting for another engine to come and take us to Riverdale. After the accident, the trainmen were so busy that Miss Laura could get no one to release me. While I sat by her, I noticed an old gentleman staring at us. He was such a queer-looking old gentleman. He looked like a poodle. He had bright brown eyes and a pointed face and a shock of white hair that he shook every few minutes. He sat with his hands clasped on the top of his cane, and he scarcely took his eyes from Miss Laura's face. Suddenly he jumped up and came and sat down beside her. "'An ugly dog, that,' he said, pointing at me. Most young girls would have resented this, but Miss Laura looked only amused. "'He seems beautiful to me,' she said gently. "'Hmm, that's because he's your dog,' said the old man, darting a sharp look at me. "'What's the matter with him?' This is his first journey by rail, and he's a little frightened. No wonder. The Lord only knows the suffering of animals and transportation, said the old gentleman. My dear young lady, if you had see have seen what I have seen, you'd never eat another bit of meat all the days of your life. Miss Laura wrinkled her forehead. I know, I've heard, she faltered. It must be terrible. Terrible? It's awful, said the gentleman. Think of the cattle on the western plains. "'choked with thirst in summer and starved and frozen in winter, "'dehorned and goaded onto trains and steamers, "'tossed about and wounded and suffering on voyages, "'many of them dying and being thrown out into the sea. "'Others landed sick and frightened. "'Some of them slaughtered on docks and wharves "'to keep them from dropping dead in their tracks. "'What kind of food does their flesh make? "'It's rank poison. Three of my family have died of cancer. "'I never eat meat.' The strange old man darted from his seat and began to pace up and down the room. I was very glad he had gone, for Miss Laura hated to bear of cruelty of any kind, and her tears were dropping thick and fast on my brown coat. The gentleman had spoken very loudly, and everyone in the room had listened to what he said. Among them was a very young man with a cold, handsome face. He looked as if he was annoyed that the older man should have made Miss Laura cry. "'Don't you think, sir,' he said." as the old gentleman passed near him, that there is a great deal of mock sentiment about this business of taking care of the dumb creation. They were made for us. They've got to suffer and be killed to supply our wants. The cattle and sheep and other animals would soon overrun the earth if we didn't kill them. Granted, said the old man, stopping right in front of him, granted, young man, if you take out the word suffer, the Lord made the sheep and the cattle and the pigs. They are his creatures just as much as we are. We can kill them, but we've no right to make them suffer. But we can't help it, sir. Yes, we can, my young man. It's a possible thing to raise healthy stock, treat it kindly, kill it mercifully, eat it decently. When men do that, I, for one, will cease to be a vegetarian. 
you're only a lad. You haven't traveled as I have. I've been from one end of this country to the other, up north, down south, and out west. I've seen sights that make me shudder. And I will tell you, the good Lord will punish this great American nation if it doesn't treat its treatment of the dumb animals committed to its care. The young man looked thoughtful and did not reply. A very sweet-faced old lady sitting near him answered the old gentleman. I don't think I have ever seen such a fine-looking old lady as she was. Her hair was snowy white, and her face was deeply wrinkled, yet she was tall and stately, and her expression was as pleasing as my dear Laura's. I do not think we are a wicked nation, she said softly. We are a younger nation than many on earth, and I think that many of our sins arise from ignorance and thoughtlessness. Yes, madam, said the fiery old gentleman, staring hard at her. I agree with you there. She smiled pleasantly at him and went on. I, too, have been a traveler, and I have talked with a great many wise and good people on the subject of the true treatment of animals, and I find that many of them have never thought about it. They themselves never knowingly ill-treat a dumb creature, and when they are told stories of inhuman conduct, they say in surprise, Why, these things surely can't exist. You see, they have never been brought in contact with them. As soon as they learn about them, they begin to agitate and say, We must have this thing stopped. What is the remedy? And what is it? What is it, madam, at your opinion? He said, pawing the floor with impatience. Just the remedy that I would propose for the great evil of intemperance, said the old lady. Legislation for the old and hardened, and education for the young and tender. I would tell the schoolboys and schoolgirls that alcohol will destroy the framework of their beautiful bodies and that cruelty to any of God's living creatures will blight and destroy their innocent young souls. The young man spoke again. Don't you think, he said, that you temperance and humane people lay too much stress upon the education of our youth and all lofty and noble sentiments? The human heart will always be wicked. Your Bible tells you that, doesn't it? You can't educate all the badness out of children. We don't expect to do that, said the old lady, turning her pleasant face toward him. But even if the human heart is desperately wicked, shouldn't that make us more eager to educate in noble and restrain? However, as far as my experience goes, and I have lived in this wicked world for 75 years, I find that the human heart, though wicked and cruel as you say, has yet some soft and tender spots, and the impressions made upon it in youth are never effaced. Do you not remember better than anything else, standing at your mother's knee, the pressure of her hand, her kiss on your forehead? By this time, our engine had arrived. A whistle was blowing, and nearly everyone was rushing from the room, the impatient old gentleman among the first. Miss Laura was hurriedly trying to do up her shawl strap, and I was standing by, wishing I could help her. The old lady and the young man were the only other people in the room, and we could not help hearing what they said. "'Yes, I do,' he said in a thick voice, and his face got really red. "'She is dead now. I have no mother.' "'Poor boy.' And the old lady laid his, her head on his shoulder. They were standing up, and she was taller than he was. "'May God bless you. I know you have a kind heart. I have four stalwart boys, and you remind me of the youngest. If you are ever in Washington, come to see me.' She gave him some name and he lifted his hat and looked as if he was astonished to find out who she was. Then he too went away, and she turned to Miss Laura. "'Shall I help you, my dear?' "'If you please,' said my young mistress. "'I can't fasten the strap.' 
In a few seconds, the bundle was done up, and we were joyfully hastening to the train. It was only a few miles to Riverdale, so the conductor let me stay in the car with Miss Laura. She spread her coat out on the seat in front of her, and I sat on it and looked out the car window as we sped along through a lovely country, all green and fresh in the June sunlight. How light and pleasant this car was, so different from the baggage car. What frightens an animal most of all is not to see where it is going, not to know what is going to happen to it. I think they are very like human beings in this respect. The lady had taken a seat beside Miss Laura, and as we went along, she too looked out the window and quoted in a low voice, "'What is so rare as a day in June, then, if ever, come perfect days.'" "'That is very true,' said Miss Laura. "'How sad that the autumn must come in the cold winter.'" "'No, my dear, not sad. "'It is but a preparation for another summer.' "'Yes, I suppose it is,' said Miss Laura. "'Then she continued a little shyly, "'as her companion leaned over to stroke my cropped ears. "'You seem very fond of animals.' "'I am, my dear. "'I have four horses, two cows, a tame squirrel, three dogs, and a cat.' "'You should be a very happy woman,' said Miss Laura with a smile. "'I think I am.' I must not forget my horn-toed Diego that I got in California. I keep him in the greenhouse, and he is very happy catching flies and holding his horny head to be scratched whenever anyone comes near. I don't see how anyone can be unkind to animals, said Miss Laura thoughtfully. Nor I, my dear child. It has always caused me intense pain to witness the torture of dumb animals. Over sixty years ago, when I was a little girl walking the streets of Boston, I would tremble and grow faint at the cruelty of drivers to overloaded horses. I was timid and did not dare to speak to them. Very often I ran home and flung myself in my mother's arms with a burst of tears and asked her if there was nothing that could be done to help the poor animals. With mistaken motherly kindness, she tried to put the subject out of my thoughts, but the animals went on suffering just the same. When I became a woman, I agitated the matter among my friends and was able to assist in the formation of several societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals. Oh, if people would only understand that their unkind deeds will recoil upon their own heads with tenfold force. Uh, but my dear child, I am fancying that I'm addressing a drawing room meeting, and here we are at your station. Goodbye. Keep your happy face and gentle ways. I hope that we may meet again some day. She pressed Miss Laura's hand, gave me a farewell pat, and the next minute we were outside on the platform, and she was smiling through the window at us. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Visit our website at www.enchantedlibrary.net to see our past books or to connect with us on Facebook. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash enchantedlibrary. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends, happy reading.